Welcome, Commonwealth listeners. I'm Matt Sitman. I'm an associate editor at Commonwealth Magazine. And I'm here with Cole Stangler, who's a Paris-based journalist who mostly writes about labor and politics. You might have seen his work in The New Republic, The Atlantic, The Nation, Descent, lots of other places, including a number of pieces for Commonweal. He was educated at Georgetown University and recently finished a master's degree at the Sorbonne. And he's going to join us to talk about, well, lots of things, but mostly French politics, I think. <clears throat> That's certainly what he's written the most about for us. And I guess by way of introduction and to get started, I was thinking back to the very first piece you wrote for us, which was in November of 2016. I had actually met you that summer and so I was hoping we'd get to work together on something. And, you know, that fall, of course, was the fall that uh, Donald Trump elected. And that was shortly after Brexit. And then Marine Le Pen was in the running for the French presidency. And that first piece you wrote for us, this was the very first sentence. Something very nasty is in the air. <laughs> and that piece was a very pessimistic piece. It seemed like you actually thought she could win. So I guess to, to begin with, it's now a little under two years later. I'd be interested in your thoughts on starting with that first piece you wrote for us and, and the two years hence, what you got right, what you got wrong, or just what your evaluation of the political situation is, especially in France, but in the United States too, perhaps, over that time period. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Matt. I think the, since I read that piece, and it's really clear, as you pointed out, that there's a I think everyone was feeling extremely pessimistic yeah. at that time, not just in the United States, but in France, yeah. too, um, after after the, the Trump election. Yeah. There really was a feeling in the air that this this, this could have been possible. And, and I think that, in a lot of ways, the national front should not be written off. Macron, the, the president that was that was elected and has been, been in office now for, for just over a year, has made statements to that effect and has been credited with dismantling the, the force of the national front. You're saying he's making those statements. I'm saying Emmanuel Macron is making those statements. Yeah. And I think a lot of the way that the, the coverage has been surrounding his presidency has kind of driven home that narrative, this idea that the National Front has, has kind of had its its moment of glory, yeah. as it were, and now is, is, has kind of faded away. And, and I, I don't think that's the case. When I wrote the piece in November, so this was just after the primary for France's mainstream right-wing right. party, not the <laughs> National Front, but what, what's known as the Les Républicains, which is the Republicans... And that was the party of Sarkozy. And, that was the party uh, of, of Nicolas Sarkozy. And then the nominee was François Fillon, who ended up, it was presumed to be the main, the, the favorite, but the heavy favorite, and basically had a campaign that was marred by a number of scandals that caused him to lose traction and opened the door, really, for Emmanuel Macron. And Macron to, to kind of step into the void and win the election. But the, the National Front, you know, I... Because I think that piece talked a lot about about the National Front. Maybe we yeah. can start by by really kind of talking about the, about that that party and where it draws its strength. Marine Le Pen performs uh, not so well in the election. I think she could have done a, a little bit better. One of the the things that, that really struck me was the the debate between Macron and Le Pen. So after after the first round, Le Pen seemed headed towards a potentially significant score. And I think the debate that she had against Macron, where she you know flopped miserably, I think really kind of sealed her fate. But had the potential to, to, to have a, a higher score. Yeah, no, I know um, uh, when I was editing that piece, I was editing it in central Pennsylvania during the Thanksgiving holiday. So some of our listeners will know that I grew up in central Pennsylvania and the county where I grew up went 70-something percent for Trump. And even the, the New York Times 
put out this extremely detailed election map recently where you could go precinct by precinct in the United States. And my parents' zip code went uh, 77% for Trump. So I was editing this piece (laughs) Mm. in the heart of Trump country. And one of the things you drew out in that piece is that a lot of her support was coming from places that were similar to places where I grew up, sort of Rust Belt, you know, burned out, kind of deindustrialized towns. So how, maybe you could walk us through a little bit of where her support came from, but also why you mentioned her poor debate performance, which I remember at the time, but how we kind of went from you writing that piece in November, thinking she really had a shot of winning to how did Macron kind of step into that void and end up doing so well? Mm. I think to answer the, the first part of the question, the National Front gets a lot of support from from blue collar workers from from the working class. If you look at the polls, it's something they that they vaunt a lot, but it's a, it's a, it's a fact. If you look at the polls, there it's, it's it's unquestionable that the National Front does have really substantial support from France. French polls are a little more detailed than the U.S., where they actually break down different socio professional levels within the working class. So you have kind of two different components. But either way, the blue collar workers, the service sector workers, Le Pen performs very strongly in the polls, and the National Front continues to do pretty well in, in the polls among them. And, and really, that, that's concentrated if in really the north of France and kind of the eastern part of France, which is where heavy industry really used to have a much more prominent place. And, and a lot of those jobs have gone, not unlike the Rust Belt in the United States. So the north used to be this real mining sector. Coal mining no longer exists in France. The east was heavy steel, some of the auto industry as well. And those jobs have left. And the National Front performs well in, in both of those areas. And I think there's been studies as well that have really shown it's, it's pretty stunning if you can look at the unemployment rate in France correlates very significantly with, with the National Front vote. Unemployment in France is around 10%. So it's something that's a much more prominent concern for a lot of people than in the United States. France has had this basically systemic high level of unemployment for, for 30 years or so. And it's really a significant question looming over all of, of political life is how do you address unemployment? And also the question of what do you do with people that are unemployed, not just creating new jobs, but also making sure that those people have services that are providing them with a decent living. And that was something that the National Front really kind of pivoted to. You know, if you go back to the party's roots in the 1970s, this was a, a xenophobic far-right party. It still is, I think it's fair to call it a xenophobic far-right party, but their main focus was immigration. Their main focus was French national identity. And while that is an, an important element of the National Front today, they've really taken up this mantle of protecting the weakest parts of French society, the, the forgotten France is what they talk about a lot. Mm-hmm. These parts of the country that have kind of been the losers of globalization, the losers under the EU. And I think also it should be pointed out the National Front, when they criticize the EU, and this isn't to, to justify the, the you know every way they, they paint this discourse, but the EU creates a lot of problems for working people in France. There are laws, there are directives that are set up by the European Union that block heavy public investment, that make sure that governments can't pursue basic Keynesian economic policies. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's painted as a boogeyman, but when the National Front criticizes EU and criticizes the lack of jobs in France and the neoliberal drive of the European Union, you know, those ideas resonate with people. And, and it should be said, and this is, you know, kind of the same debate, that, the never-ending debate that happens in the United States of what's responsible for Donald Trump. Right. You know, is it, is it just <laughs> the economic anxiety, you know, which has now become this kind of cliché? Or is it racism? And I think obviously the response is, you know, it's, it's both. And to say that, right. that mm-hmm. one is divorced from the other is, is, is ridiculous. Yeah. So sure, immigration and fear of immigration and the other and racism also is, is responsible for the National Front success. But to only focus on that, I find kind of silly. And I, I wrote it in, in the piece and, you know, 10 million people in France voted for the National Front. 
more than there should be are probably unreconstructed racists. And that's that should be cause for significant concern. But I have trouble believing and maybe I'll, I'll be wrong, but I have trouble believing that 10 million people in France are, are basically frothing at the mouth, you know, racist, you know, xenophobes. Right. So th- those are some of the reasons you thought. Uh, Le Pen could win, especially, again, after Brexit and after Trump, it could seem like the kind of third act in this horrible play. Yeah. And again, for, for listeners who might not follow French politics, we're basically saying that after Brexit, after Trump, the French presidential election, it seemed like the far right National Front Party could actually seize the presidency of France. But that didn't happen. So why did that not happen? What were the series of events that led to Macron winning, and not just winning, but winning with a huge majority in French legislature? I mean, I think the most important thing to understand about French politics, and this is a big misconception yeah. that, that I think by when people point exactly to this, the second round uh, vote between Le Pen and Macron, where Macron... Well, could you take a step back and tell us like how the French presidential elections work? Very, so, very briefly. so the way the, the way the system works is that there's a two-round system. So you have the first the first round of the election. If no one gets 50% of the vote in the first round of the election, which is something that's never happened, then there's a second round, the, the quote-unquote runoff round, right. and the winner of the runoff round is, is the president. And then a, couple, a month later are the legislative elections to fill the National Assembly, which is the main legislature. The Senate has less power in France. And also, like the presidential race, those legislative elections are two rounds. So France has basically a two-round system. One of the, the main mistakes, or maybe misconceptions, when, when people look at Macron and think about French politics today and see how Le Pen lost, is this idea that Macron, because he had such a sweeping victory against Le Pen in the second round, again, like 60, more than 60% of the vote, people assume that he has this big mandate. People look at the legislative elections as well, assume he has a big popular mandate for his policies. And he, he, really, he really doesn't. So I think that the most important thing to understand is Macron came to power because of a very specific set of circumstances that enabled him to sneak into the second round. And if you look at that first round results, again, there's the two rounds. If no one wins 50% in the first round, they go to the second round. In the first round, Macron had just over, I think, a quarter of the vote, just a little bit over 25% of the vote. He came in first, but there were four candidates that were all polling neck and neck you know, Macron, Le Pen, and then you had the right-wing candidate I referenced earlier, François Fillon from the Republican Party, the mainstream, quote-unquote mainstream right-wing Republican candidate. And you also had Jean-Luc Mélenchon of the left-wing party, uh, La France Insoumise, which has been translated in a number of different ways, and I haven't quite decided which one I like best. I, I don't think any of them really, really captured best. I've said re- rebellious France, I think, is, is something yeah. that I like. And really, Macron snuck into <laughs> this uh, second round, and then w- faced with the option of Le Pen versus Macron, I think, you know, voters, and again, we can talk about differences between France and the United States, but this was something that I think voters, the choice is pretty obvious that they went ahead and selected Macron. And in the debate performance as well, I think, increased that margin. I'm not sure Le Pen really had a chance of, of winning under the circumstances, but I think voters were really upset by this debate performance where she was clearly outmatched, messing up basic facts, really aggressive, and just you know, not dissimilar from the way Donald Trump performed in his debates. <laughs> right. But I think in France, the reaction was, this is this is unacceptable. Is there just one the debate? cost or some points. There was one debate for the second round okay. between the two. Okay. So that was their only head-to-head contest in yeah. a sense. Okay. Well, there was, yeah, their only head-to-head. Exactly. Right. They had, there had been debates for the for the first round as well. Right. Okay. Well, that might be a good chance to talk about another piece you've written to us more recently, which we called basically a letter from Paris, sort of a dispatch, since you live in Paris, which included both some comments on Macron's policies once he had been elected and and kind of taking the reins of government, but also just your impression being on the ground. And 
maybe you could talk about that some. So Macron did win this resounding victory, even if it was not as resounding as sometimes the numbers might portray. And he comes into office. And what's his agenda like? What's he been trying to do as president? Macron has, has promised since, since taking office to have a really vigorous reform agenda. And with mm-hmm. his prime minister, Edouard Philippe, they've been pretty aggressively going and pursuing that agenda. That includes uh, labor law was, was the first big plank of those reforms. So the idea of basically weakening French labor regulations to kind of give companies more flexibility, make it easier to lay off workers. And the idea was this is supposed to tackle this Again, like I mentioned before, this central question over the, the um, French economic and political life, which is how do you tackle unemployment? Mm-hmm. And the idea was, this is a, a link that I think is more than disp- disputable, but the idea was by loosening labor regulations, you're going to stimulate job growth. How big a deal was this in France? Because to American ears, it's like, oh, like none of us have any real job security anyway. We can all be fired at a moment's notice for the most part. But it seemed like this was something where both when you and I you know, talked about this issue and then when you wrote about it, the kind of distance between what French expectations were kind of culturally and how Americans might view that issue, the gap was pretty big. So what did it mean to kind of overhaul labor law? Like what was, and what was the reaction of the French citizenry? The, the polls showed that it, opinion was either a split or a, a small majority of people were opposed to the labor law reforms which didn't really matter, and this is another kind of important component of the, the current environment, is that opinion polls don't matter so much to the extent that the parliament is completely, the National Assembly is completely under the control of Macron's party with a really wide majority, which means that they go ahead with their agenda as they see fit. Right. So, and that's been borne out by a number of other reforms. Most recently, there's been the railway reforms, again, similar to the labor law reforms, and I'll mention that in a, in a moment basically making it easier to to lay off railroad workers, to cut jobs, to control spending. Got maybe some of the specifics as well, but you know, people were were opposed to those or 50-50 and it doesn't really matter because the National Assembly is with Macron and they'll they'll go ahead and, and, and approve those reforms as well. The labor law reform, you know, I think so going back, this is this was in the fall of, of twenty seventeen. This was kind of a first big test for Macron. Was right. many French presidents have promised to <clears throat> pursue ambitious reforms of the welfare state, most notably in the, in the 90s under um, uh, Prime Minister Alain Juppé, who was Chirac's prime minister, had a social security reform that was derailed by massive protests by labor unions. So Macron says, you know, he's going to pursue this pro-business agenda to stimulate the French economy. And he goes after a really bold move, which is to tackle labor law and to decrease the some of the protections that the workers enjoy. And I think people were, were, were generally opposed to it, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter because the, the National Assembly votes to do it anyways. Yeah. Well, one thing that struck me in your letter from Paris was that, and maybe this could help us segue a bit into some of the differences between French politics and American politics at the moment, how comparing them might help us understand each of them, is that you said Macronism is kind of in the background of French people's lives in a way that Trump is not in the background yeah. of our lives. Yeah. That, you know, you say Donald Trump to anyone at a bar, at a Thanksgiving dinner, you know, at a family gathering, and it kind of elicits, everyone has an opinion on it, everyone's upset about it, or defensive about it, as it might be. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Like, so, I mean, you're living in Paris, you've been living there for the last two years. What did you mean when you say that, like, 
people just don't care about Macron the way we're caring. We seem to care about Donald Trump. So I should say before I, I respond, I, I still basically maintain, basically. Ba- basically agree with what I with what I wrote a, a few months, and I, I'm not sure that that piece probably came out in yeah, it's January, been a while February. since we yeah, uh, it was early spring I think when we published it, so right? Things early early spring, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and no, I think we can maybe talk about what's the contemporary or, or immediate developments that I think might cause me to maybe modify that that statement a little bit. But but basically, the, I agree with the thrust of it, which is that you know Trump has forced a lot of people to become incredibly to be more political in a way that people that don't really spend their lives thinking about politics that now are spending their days either on Twitter or getting, and it's not necessarily a a good thing either or a healthy thing, but it's something that forces people to adjust to this new political reality that we're living under. Trump has that kind of polarizing effect on people. And Macron is some, you know, Macron actually, if you look at the the polls, Trump, I think has around 45% approval ratings, if I'm not mistaken, something like that. Macron has lower approval ratings than that now in the, in, in the 30s. And you wouldn't know it um, just based on the way the media coverage and, and based on the general kind of atmosphere in, in, in the country. Macron has very low approval ratings, but it's not something that is as divisive. And I think also part of that has to probably do with the, the policies that are that are being pursued. As much as I've been critical of, of Macron, I think that you know, there are some, some substantive, uh, you know, substantial differences between between the two. But perhaps to focus on maybe one of the, the similarities, which I tried to, to write in, in the piece, is that, you know, Macron gets portrayed as, and I think a lot of it has to do with what we're dealing with the United States, Macron gets portrayed as being a kind of defender of Western liberal values. And fortunately, we have people like him. This is the, the logic. Fortunately, we have people like him and Merkel to be able to stand up for the mantle of liberal democracy in the face of... Uh, these threats coming from the United States. The post-war <laughs> order. Right. Yeah. He upholds these basic liberal values. He's a liberal at heart. He believes in democracy. He believes in certain you know, liberal values, norms, free speech, uh, protecting the rights of minorities, etc. And one of the, I think, really, really heinous policies that Macron's party has pursued is immigration law reform, immigration and asylum law reform. So Macron, who outwardly, and if you see some of his tweets, and the way that he's, he's, he's talked about this to, to certain audiences portrays himself as someone who needs to uphold Europe to, to show, to assume Europe's responsibility as a land of asylum for people that are seeking refuge, the people that are, that are fleeing these conflicts, and notably the way that he's kind of sparred with the, the new Italian prime minister and, and the government that's backed by the far-right party there. But if you actually look at the, the, the policies that, that are being adopted, this asylum law reform, which basically decreases, there's a number of elements, but I think one of the, one of the most important parts is that it, it basically decreases the amount of time people have to appeal their asylum requests being... And being what denied. kinds of people are requesting asylum? Uh, you, have, you have people coming from, um, from the Mediterranean, coming from, from Africa. You have people coming from more Eastern countries and, and, and Eastern Europe. And you also have people, it's, it's much less today, you know, but Syria and Afghanistan and Pakistan, which is also significantly less than, the, the, than, than it was in, in 2015. But there still is, you know, more than 100,000, if I'm not mistaken, from this year so far. Mm-hmm. Fleeing the fleeing the, the conflicts in Syria and, and coming to Europe, and you know that's a really clear example of I think Macron failing to to live up to these ideas and not just failing to live up to these ideas but actually actively pursuing policies that are making sure that it's easier to deport people that are coming to France or that are living in France and do not have their papers in order. Macron is, is pursuing policies that make that easier, and I think you know in some ways it's it's, it's 
the hypocrisy of it is in, in a lot of ways more in, infuriating, you know, mm-hmm. or as infuriating as, as Trump. I suppose since we're drawing out some of the similarities and differences between Trump and Macron, or at least the conditions which gave rise to them both, I'm interested in your thoughts about American politics from a French perspective, or maybe to put it a little differently, not being in the American media ecosystem. I mean, we we talked about Macron not kind of looming in French people's consciousness in quite the same way that Trump looms in Americans' consciousness. How much of that has to do with differences in how the media covers each of them? I mean, if you just read French newspapers, like what would you know about Donald Trump? I think Donald Trump is extraordinarily unpopular in, in France <laughs> right. and I would extraordinarily so. popular I mean, across, even more across so Europe. Than, like, a lot of American presidents might be, right? Maybe this would be another point of conversation, but just the, the intellectual culture in France, it seems like Trump is almost, after someone like George W. Bush, like uniquely suited to raise the ire of French people, right? You talked about Le Pen's debate performance and how much of a turnoff that was for French voters. Maybe you could just talk about that a little bit. You know, like why she turned off French voters so much and how that connects to how unpopular Donald Trump is. Not even unpopular, but almost like people are disgusted by him. You know, I think one of the big differences is, you know, French society is more political in, in general. It's not unfair to say education level is, is it's generally higher among the population. And people get access and, and are accessing information about politics on a more consistent basis. And, and it was, you know, turnout levels. People talked about historically low voter turnout levels in France in last year's presidential election to some degree. But more importantly, the legislative elections where Macron won his majority turnout was under 50% for the first time in a in the legislative vote. The presidential vote was around 75%. And this was being talked about as being a low turnout election, 75% of the population voting. Whereas Donald Trump was elected with maybe 50%, basically. So I think there's a, a core difference there. But I think, you know, the, the way that France is reacting to Donald Trump is probably not unlike the way that the rest of Europe, if not the world, is reacting to Donald Trump, which, you know, he's seen as someone who is buffoonish, um, really dumb, which I don't think is unfair to say. And that's the kind of prevailing sentiment. I think, you know, also... Isn't it true to, that Macron's kind of tried to strike up this odd friendship with Trump or their relationship is just very weird to me because you do have a sense that Macron's trying to almost win him over in some way. But then it's also this kind of curious masculine competition where, you know, there's these photos of them trying to shake each other's hands and like one of them tries to get the advantage when they're shaking hands. No, it's a very famous incident. Yeah. The the handshaking incident. Yeah. And so I'm like, I find them as a political duo very curious because they obviously... You know, as we said, like a lot of people in France really hate Donald Trump, but Macron tried to win him over, but he's also trying to like outman him in some way. It's all just very bizarre and and strange to me. Macron has a kind of monarchical quality to him. Well, he's the Jupiter, right? He's referred to himself as as such Jupiterian style (laughs) presidency, which is, you know, also informs the way he handles the press, which is he does not make lots of public pronouncements. And when he does, they're very targeted and planned ahead of time. He'll do certain interviews and the location has been set in advance. When he gave his first interview, the, the whole office was decorated in a certain way. He had this, I'm forgetting the name of the person who did the famous Obama poster, uh, oh, the Hope right. poster. Yeah. Basically a French equivalent of that with like a liberty, equality, fraternity poster hanging in the office. And everything was, was carefully kind of put together. So he's very, very conscious of his public image and conscious of each interaction he has. The kind of masculine posturing with Donald Trump I think was understood to be something that the French president needed to do because I don't think it was taken as being really 
this is seen as, you know, you have to maintain relations with the United States. And if that requires shaking your hand vigorously and, and patting someone on the back a lot, you know, maybe it's worth it. That's what I would say about that. Maybe we should talk a little bit about how we see things going forward. Well, the things you've written for us, even our discussion here, I think you and I agree a lot on the, the basic conditions that gave rise to both someone like Le Pen and someone like Trump. I mean, we're two people who use the term neoliberalism, like it rolls off our tongue pretty easily. I, try, I really I really try not to use the word too much. <laughs> I, know, I, I, know, very, I know, I know. I think I, think I only it, used it once because I'm very conscious of... I know you are, but, but we both know exactly what it means, or I think we both know exactly what the other means if, if one of us uses it. And we're both kind of a critic of you know, the last 30, 40 years of economic policy in the United States and Europe. And we think that has something to do with the populist uprising. So however much racism or xenophobia is also in the mix. One reason I've been so interested in French politics, and I've been so glad you've written for us about French politics, is because you almost have an interesting test case where the United States elected one person in response to these conditions, or the populist uprising, if you want to call it that, manifested itself one way. And then in France, you had a very different, the election of Macron was, was very different. So it's almost like a, a controlled experiment where, where you're seeing like how different responses to what's, to these deeper, almost tectonic issues, uh, how that might play out. So do you have any thoughts on that? Where you think this is all going? Because I, I myself tend to a certain amount of pessimism. It's shocking to me that Trump is still, say, a 45% approval rating. And uh, unemployment rate is very, very low in the United States right now. We've hit 4% growth. <laughs> it's entirely conceivable to me that Donald Trump could be reelected. I'm not saying he will be. I mean, a lot can intervene. He's still not a very talented politician in some ways. Still making a lot of mistakes, still a lot of scandals. But I tend toward pessimism. So Especially I'm, seeing the, the state of the opposition as well. In the, in the uh, yeah, and, yeah, seeing how pathetic the Democratic Party is, Schumer, Pelosi, these people. I mean, they clearly have no idea what they're really doing. I don't know whether you want to talk about more about Macron or Trump, but I, I guess I'm interested in going forward where you see things going. Uh, maybe the first thing I'd say is, you know, I remember shortly after Macron was elected, I was talking to, to, to someone who made a comment to the effect of France for, for a long time. And maybe I think another one of the things that unites the United States and France today is really this kind of long-term decline. France is, France is really a French intellectual life. And it's not a good thing by any means, but has been really obsessed with the decline of France. It's almost kind of cliched at this point, but France being this, you know, top class political power, but also cultural power. And it is to some degree today, but not at its, its past glories, you know, not nothing to do with the, the colonial empire as well. I think has a, has a role there as well, but France's intellectuals have long kind of, uh, contemplated the, the decline of, of, of the country, you know, politically and culturally as well, and, and what's happened to, to French social life. And this idea of France being, you know, kind of backwards compared to the rest of the European world and North American world that, that that's advancing. Again, this is a, a kind of the short version of it. But as someone was, was pointing out, you know, is there really any more of a a proof of this kind of thesis of France being being out of touch with, you know, the rest of Europe and North America than the fact that they've now put someone into office Emmanuel Macron basically trying these third way economic policies that were attempted and failed in the United States in the 1990s and failed in the UK warmed over and Thatcher. and warmed over Blairism. Exactly. We know how the story ends and it does not end very well. And now <laughs> yeah. that France is, is finally found their new third wave uh, person. <laughs> and I think that it's the same way of doing politics. And this is somehow being presented as being new and innovative when in fact it's this rehashing of this 
politics that we've seen it and, and the devastation that, that Reaganism and Thatcherism brought on the United States and the UK is it's catastrophic. And we've seen now the political backlash to it. It's also catastrophic. So I don't think France is headed down a very good path. I don't think Le Pen necessarily is going to win the election, but a lot of things can happen. And what's clear is that France is in a significant political crisis, heading towards a significant political crisis. I think that uh, Macron didn't resolve it. You have a situation in France today where you have the National Front that has about 20, 25% of the electorate. Macron, a real base for Macron, has 20, 25%. The right wing also has 20, 25%. And the left wing, François Insoumise, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, has 20, 25%. So a lot of things are up in the air. It makes it exciting to some extent, but it's also a frightening environment, not unlike the United States. We're going back, and I think we're emerging from a period of, and I think both of us grew up in this in this era where politics had a certain stability to it. And we there were a basic set of values that people subscribed to and a basic kind of consensus, and that's unraveled. And we were in this kind of frightening, exciting time for some of us who are on the left and want to see the narrative pushed in a certain direction and this created a kind of window for that, I would say, especially in the United States. Yeah. But it's also very frightening. And I think anyone, yeah. you know, is foolish to say they know how this is going to end. But what's clear is we're entering kind of uncharted territory. Yeah. No, I was hoping to end on a, a more hopeful note yeah. and talk about the left, both in France and the United States, a bit. But maybe before we get there, I, I am interested in one question in particular. I know you wrote a piece for The Atlantic a few months ago. It was more of a deep dive into how the National Front reacted to Le Pen's loss. And so if you if you were to say, well, I think it's possible Le Pen could win or a National Front candidate would win, why would you say that? And like, how have they reacted to her loss? What have they done that makes you think they actually could kind of rebound and seize the moment in however many years until the next French election? Well, what I was writing in, in the piece was actually the opposite, I think, was which is that right. they really have kind of... You know, they seem to disarray in the piece. But I'm just saying, since you've worked through some of those issues and, and know more about it than than I do, like kind of what your read is on the national front and what their paths to power might be. The first thing, and this sounds, you know, it could sound kind of silly, but I think it's it's one important element here. Part of the story is that the national front has officially changed its name. They're no longer the national front. A lot of people don't, even in France, haven't really caught on to the, to the new name. They've changed the name from the national front to the Rassemblement National, which is like a national rally <laughs> Party basically deciding, you know, it's time to turn the page on this. This brand right. is tainted, you know, <laughs> and we have to come up with a new identity in, in order to to tap in some voters that are turned off by the the, the racism right. and and the years of, of of being associated with Jean-Marie Le Pen. I think changing the name is a small thing. I think that's one step for them where they conceivably attract an electorate that otherwise would have been off limits. You know, there's always the the wild card of of terrorism. You know, hopefully, you know, it, 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 there hasn't been a, a large scale attack in the last few years. But that's always a you know a wild card that that's a possibility. Um, the National Front really used their advantage under François Hollande, attempting to portray themselves as a credible alternative in past in last year's presidential election. I would say that the biggest factor is you know a lot of ways like when I think about Donald Trump and what are the conditions under which Donald Trump and the the, the far right manifestation of the Republican Party can continue to to grow and to maintain power is the ineptitude of their opponents. And I think that's like in the United States and France, the National Front is Emmanuel Macron, I think, you know, is, is more competent than, than than certain politicians, but also is pursuing these policies that are very unpopular, that are creating conditions right. for lots of unknowns. <laughs> I think that's the, the biggest yeah. factor. What would it take for the left to win in France? And I guess I asked you what, you know, the conditions under which uh, the far right might win. 
Well, what's kind of the state of the left in France? And then... Maybe and you said you wanted to end this on an optimistic note? <laughs> I know, yeah, that's... Well, what's the saying? No, um, we, uh, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Grumsky, you know, yeah. Yeah. I find myself <laughs> quoting him a lot these days. Like the, 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 uh, the, the monsters quote as well, I like a lot. Of, okay, that was yeah. the, the time of, of, of monsters. Yeah. I have to admit, there's probably not going to be too many references to Gramsci on the Commonwealth podcast, but I'm glad we snuck a couple in. But, I mean, in the, in the United States, at least, I feel pretty confident, actually, that maybe because our economic system and the, the, safety, the social security and safety net we have here is so threadbare that even just talking about things like decent health care is a political winner here. Um, I know even family members of mine who voted for Donald Trump Bernie was like their number two choice, mainly because he said things like, if you get cancer, you shouldn't go bankrupt. And if you have any kind of aging parents, like say like my parents do, my grandmother's in a nursing home, my parents and, and people like my parents in central Pennsylvania are very aware of kind of the economic realities of what it means to age and get sick and, and need to be taken care of. And I think you know, because again, the United States is, we're so threadbare in those areas. Like there's a real sense. It it makes a lot of sense to me that that kind of message could resonate in places where, you know, where Hillary Clinton really only lost by tens of thousands of votes. You know, I I forget the exact number, but 300,000 votes really is what swayed the presidential election. And I'm fairly certain that in places like Pennsylvania or Michigan or Ohio or Wisconsin, a more kind of left-leaning economic message could provide a viable path to victory for the right candidate uh, if the Democratic Party doesn't blow it like they normally do. In France, you know, it's, I'm assuming, a different situation, especially when you consider that the election that brought Macron to power was after a socialist president. What's the state of play in France, especially when it comes to the left and like what kind of message the left needs and what might be the, the best antidote to the far right populism. I think as you're alluding to in your question, France has the social safety net that is now a part of increasingly mainstream uh, Democratic Party demands right now, which is you know, already in place in France. It's, it's been under duress now for the last few years and, uh, you know, if not, if not decades. But I think in France, some of the things that Jean-Luc Mélenchon was talking about in the, in the presidential campaign last year, talking about more positive environmental message, I think, can can win over some voters. When we think about Macron and the kind of the current moment, what, what's happening right now, and so what, what I mentioned at the beginning, France does have a robust social safety net, and they have a much higher standard of public services than the United States. But the model is severely underfunded right now. People are attached to public services in France. They're attached to the high quality of care they have in hospitals, which is, which is I think, on the whole, for a uh, your average person higher in France, you don't have, you don't go bankrupt, you know, because of medical bills, which is a thought that's, I think, sounds abhorrent to most French people when they see what's happening in the United States. People are accustomed to, and a lot of people grew up having access to a certain quality of, of public services, which still exists today, but I think is, is increasingly under duress. The quality of, of education has been going down. The quality of, of hospitals has been going down slightly. Um, the postal service is not in a, in a very good place. And I think for the left in France, I think there's, there's something to be had for arguing for the relevance of these basic public services at a time when the consensus of the political establishment right now is to undermine them because this is seen as a, a characteristic of a country that can no longer compete in a global economy. 
that needs to adjust to the new realities that needs to get rid of the wealth tax, which is another important piece of Macron's reforms. Mm-hmm. And I think really underlining the reemphasizing the importance of having a, a, a social safety net and defending public services at a time when they're when they're when they're under attack, I think, is a way of, of rallying voters. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a really important piece of, of the kind of defensive posture, which unfortunately the French left is in right now, just arguing for the continued relevance of these public services. Right. And I think looking more um, on the on the more kind of offensive side of things, there's there's the ability to talk about, I think, lowering the, the work week further, which can sound kind of maybe funny to American ears. But I think as a way of addressing this unemployment crisis, that it's a solution that I think isn't as isn't so far fetched. France famously has a 35-hour work week, but companies often require people to work more than that and they get bonuses. But I think, you know, trying to, to decrease the working week is, is, is one way of tackling the unemployment crisis. I think people are also talking about basic income as an idea, which I think if that's being advocated for, should be done without touching the rest of benefits that people, that people receive. Mm-hmm. There are some of these more offensive ideas. I would say the work week and, and some kind of basic income or, or, or benefits that people are receiving yeah. could, be, could, be, could be a way of, of energizing voters. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the United States, at least, it seems like some like Bernie Sanders base really is young people, millennials, people who have you know, graduated from college, often with a lot of debt, who have entered a post 2008 crash job market, who just kind of have entered basically a young adult life with a severely diminished prospects. And it's it, when you connect that to his message, it's, it's pretty clear why that's the case, yeah. why those people support him. Is it the same in France? Is it like young people? Is that who Mélenchon's really drawing from? I mean, who's like the, the median's supporter of his? You know, I, uh, I think I think I'm, I was talking to a journalist who was covering the, the election who was really attached to this, this story about, I won't name any names, attached to the story of young people supporting the National Front and how kind of French yeah. youth were going, you know, fascist, <laughs> for, for lack of a better word. <laughs> Which is a, you know, a sexy story. It's compelling. Right. And it's historically, I mean, like if I'm trying to console myself a little bit in the United States, it's like when you do read histories of fascism, it's like younger people were yeah, you need in to the have, Nazism. You need, yeah. you need to have and in the United people. States, It's not a winning political coalition yeah, to yeah. have, just to have older voters. In the United States, it's like that. The, you know, your typical Trump voter is like a, like a doddery and 60-something Fox yeah. News viewer. Yeah. Not, not like a, a, it's not this youthful, vibrant. Right, uh, right. It's not the future. Right. Uh, anyways... Right. No, I know. I was going to say is that and and in fact, actually, contrary to what this journalist was was correctly seeing in the polls to some extent, but and also contrary to what they expected to be the result of the election, young people voted for Mélenchon, a plurality of young voters, 18 to 24 voted, supported Mélenchon over any other candidate. It was Mm -hmm. Mélenchon. I think Le Pen came second and Macron third Mm -hmm. or maybe Macron and Le Pen were, 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 were neck and neck. But Mélenchon won the won the youth vote. So I think that that's a cause for hope. I think young people in France are not satisfied with the policies that Macron's pursuing. There's also been the education reforms that have, that have taken place, which the, the short version of it is basically making it um, more selective U.S.-style admissions procedures heading towards that path. I think that, that scares people and young people don't support that. So I think, you know, young people in France continue to be pretty left-wing. Um, you know, in any case, a, a part of the Mélenchon coalition, and he's also been able to not unlike Bernie Sanders, really, really tap into social media and, and people that spend a lot of time on, on the Internet, whether it's a yeah. good thing or bad thing. This is the world we're living in. And I think that Mélenchon has done that very well. Yeah. He gives, you know, his, his I YouTube. remember his hologram. 
right? Yeah, the I mean, let's, the hologram is a different story as far as I'm concerned. I think the hologram was, was hokey, you know, even beyond. Yeah, it was weird. You know, it was, it was, it was oh, weird. It was super weird. Yeah. Well, I guess it's, it is a little disconcerting, though, that even if Mélenchon, you know, was the, the top choice of 18 to 24-year-olds, that Le Pen was second. And where does that... What are the difference between those two groups of supporters? Uh, is it sort of a, a urban-rural divide? Is it Paris versus the peripheries? You know, because I, I, I do sometimes wonder, even in the case of, of the United States, when I talk to friends of mine from central Pennsylvania who, you know, I have a, 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 like a cousin's daughter who says, like, you wouldn't believe the number of high school kids who roll into the uh, high school parking lot with Confederate flags on their trucks. And this is, you know... A place that's mm. two hours from Gettysburg, right? <laughs> right. It's it's the north. Yeah. It's not South Carolina or Georgia or something. And so I do kind of I have some worries in that regard that like the kind of people I'm friends with, sort of millennials in New York City, aren't typical. But even beyond that, like basically the generation younger than millennials might. I don't really know how they're trending in the United States. But in terms of urban rural divide, is that does that map onto sort of which French young people are supporting the left? Which versus those who are leaning toward the right? Yeah, I think the National Front performs very poorly in, in major cities, whether it's Paris, where they got under 10%, under 5% even, or Marseille or Toulouse, big cities, the National Front does, mm-hmm. does very poorly. I think that's an important piece of it. And I think maybe another thing that, that comes to mind is I think it's also a vote in a lot of ways of kind of a lack of, of other options on the table. Mm-hmm. You know, in the same way that we could we we could see Trump as a kind of lashing out effect. I think that in, in a lot of ways, Le Pen mirrors. I remember talking to younger people who actually wanted to vote for Marine Le Pen, and this was kind of the the sentiment: is that why not give it a chance? You know, after after seeing what what Francois Hollande did. You know, I think in, in a lot of ways, also we we tend to, for most regular people that aren't nerds like us who are spending our you know our days on Twitter and reading you know right. new papers that are coming out and and, and every article. Right. You know, on a certain topic, most people don't spend a long time thinking about politics. And that's something that I think I've come to yeah. appreciate more and more is yeah. that people's choices aren't necessarily as rational as we as we make them make them out to be. And I yeah. think that in a lot of ways, there's that kind of, you know, rebellious, just kind of why not, you know, lash yeah. out kind of vote that I think is an important part of the National Front, you know, electorate for for young people, but also more generally. And that's the kind of frightening world that we're living today, where that's that's a possibility. I was maybe one, one last thing to add when we were, we were talking about, you know, when you were asking me about how Trump was being being received, you know, abroad. Yeah, I was, you know, Le Mans today. You know, the the, the, the main story on Le Mans website is the Nazi demonstration in Washington D.C. The, the the far right national oh, really? demonstration yeah. and how they were outnumbered by the left. By the same token, yeah. I remember a story in Le Mans, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's victory in New York, the congressional district, right around here was a story in Le Mans. People, it was? It was a story in Le Mans. People, people pay attention to this. Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the, the, the left-wing candidate from France Insoumise, the, the leader of France Insoumise, was talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as well. Oh, wow. And I think a lot of this resonates. And I think, I, I say that to also underline the importance of these changes in the U.S. that are creating a more fertile climate for the left and, and not just a more, um, you know, better climate, but also actually concrete victories. Yeah. And I think that that's... Uh, you know, should be a sign of, of, of encouragement for people yeah. looking for something in the world that's, you know, that, that things are yeah. getting darker and darker. All right. Well, uh, some predictions. 2020, the United States. Who's going to be elected president? Are you going to make me do this? Yeah. I, 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 it's a difficult, difficult question to answer. 
Okay. I think right now, if Bernie Sanders looked at the polls and decided not to run, you know, it wouldn't make a lot of sense. I think he'd be crazy not to run, you okay. know, given given the given the the advantage he, he currently enjoys. All right, and uh, who's going to be the next president of France? That's a harder question. I think that's right. even a harder question to harder. to answer. Or we could be dealing with Trump and Macron in our you know d- dystopian world in another <laughs> six years. I I really I really hope not. But well, I think we've covered a lot of bases. And uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.